So the first thing we were going to talk about is, is uh, uh, skin cancers other than just straightforward basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma. For this, so the first thing we were going to talk about was bovinoid papulosis. And people use this term differently, but what they're generally referring to is HPV-related skin cancer in the genital area that's a lot like squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And so it's usually typically caused by HPV 16 and 18, and it usually takes on this pigmented appearance. In fact, a significant number of the cases that I see for bovinoid papulosis or biopsied is pigmented lesions. Sometimes people say rule out mole or something like that because in the genital area, there's a lot of melanocytes per square inch, and you see a lot of pigment uh, in the skin down there. But if you look under the microscope, it's kind of squamous cell carcinoma in situ of a certain kind. It has a preserved granular layer up here, and it has this windswept appearance, and it has mitotic figures above the basal layer and all those different things. And, and so it's very, very easy to recognize bovinoid papulosis in the genital area, and people usually treat it very conservatively. They usually use a destructive modality and close follow-up and, and things like that. But, but more and more we see uh, bovinoid papulosis in unusual places. We see it in unusual places like the hand or, or the mucosa, the oral mucosa, things like that. And you can all uh, imagine how uh, that might be the case, but we see more and more bovinoid papulosis in unusual locations. And so this woman presented uh, a few years ago at the University of Colorado, and she had this big plaque on her hand. And she told me this story that she'd been to see all these dermatologists in Denver, and everybody had told her it was psoriasis, and that it was, uh, you know, it was hand dermatitis, and all these different things. And I looked at it for a minute, and I realized, oh my goodness, that's, that's definitely squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And I was very, very concerned for all these people who had seen her. She had been seeing doctors for like almost 19 years, she said, for, for this condition. And it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So we took a couple biopsies, and you'll notice that it looks exactly like the bovinoid papulosis on the genitalia. You have this preserved granular layer. You have this windswept, disorganized appearance of the epithelium. You have mitotic figures and apoptotic cells and all those things. And so we're starting to see more and more bovinoid papulosis. I probably see bovinoid papulosis four or five times a year on the hands. And so we were really faced with a conundrum in this case because the surgery would be very, very debilitating be a very, very horrible surgery here. You can imagine, Dr. Miller, what would you, what would you probably do there? Well, you could, you could do Mohs on this area, but you would definitely have to graft it. Yeah, that's, and, that's, that's and the important point. Yeah, there is yeah. not a way to close, close that large of a surface area on the hand. So unfortunately, um, you, the, the best thing would, to do would be a split uh, thickness skin graft from the thigh, but unfortunately, the hand that palmar surface of the hand is so heavily keratinized, it would take a long time for that skin to sort of convert into that, uh, the skin of the thigh to convert into the skin of the hand. Plus, you might be convert, you might be transferring some hairs, which most people would not like at all to have hairy palms. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what you would need to do. Yeah, and and it, her whole life would be different. I mean, she would have that 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 skin would never regain the same strength. She would probably have to if she did an occupation that she used her hands a lot. Her life would be totally totally different for squamous cell carcinoma in situ. And I was really worried about what those other doctors, uh, how those other doctors might be perceived for the years for hand dermatitis and things like that. So, so what we did in this case was we went ahead and we did topical therapy. So we used this triple therapy of tazeratine uh, every morning and we used 5-fluorouracil every afternoon at about 3 p.m. And then we used amiquimod every single night. And so she did this for six weeks. And what I did to this woman was probably against the Geneva Convention. I mean, it was really, really really horrible. It was really horrible. Like her, her, I could see the tendons of her hand underneath 
uh, the wound bed. By, and I, I spared you those pictures, but it was really, really horrible. Like we, we were talking about serious narcotic pain relief and, and things like that. But in the end, at the end of the six weeks of the therapy, here's her, her, her palm, what it looked like afterwards. And so, so we had a really, really good, fortunate result. And it was fortunate for everybody involved, all the, all the doctors involved, that it turned out really, really, really well. And so, so this is published. I mean, you can find it. Uh, uh, Dr. Rosen at, at Baylor is probably the person who originated the therapy. But it, it was very, very um, important in this case, not only for the patient's sake, but for everybody's sake involved, really, that we had this very, very, very fantastic outcome. So it's something to think about in the future. You have to do it very, very carefully, and you'll probably need some hand-holding of somebody who's done it before, because it was a very, very horrible thing. Uh, another unusual tumor to talk about uh, beyond basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma would be verrucous carcinoma. And verrucous carcinoma is a special subtype that's been known for, for many, many years, but it's caused by HPV also, but it truly is a squamous cell carcinoma. And so this was a patient I cared for in Dallas, and, and uh, he, had been see, uh, he had seen a whole bunch of dermatologists in Dallas, and, and they had told him, oh, well, it's a ward. It's just a ward. It's no big deal. Well, m most warts don't grow through the foot and pop out the other side. Uh, of your foot. And, that, and you see in this image, that's exactly what happened. You can actually see the faint tumor down here. And it actually grew through the foot and popped out the other side. And so it really truly is a carcinoma. It's a cancer for sure. But it is HPV related. And the reason why it's important to talk about it is it's very often a medical legal conundrum for sure. And so, so what you see here, this is an actual sampling of verrucous carcinoma right here, and it doesn't look that malignant. If you look at a lot of carcinoma and things like I do, it doesn't look malignant at all. In fact, the epithelium doesn't look that much different from normal uh, squamous epithelium. However, what's unusual about it is it's real downward growth. It projects down deep into the dermis. We call these epithelial tongues that project way down deep into the dermis, and in his case, they even popped out the other side of the foot. So it's not a diagnosis you can render on cytology. What I mean is the abnormal appearance of the cells. It's a diagnosis that you, you, that you render based on architecture. And the reason that that's important is because what happened to this poor man over and over again is somebody would do a very, very thin shave biopsy like this, and then they would write, rule out wart. And so the dermatopathologist would look at the tissue, and, and, and for all practical purposes, that looks exactly like a wart. And so the dermatopathologist would just agree with the person, yeah, it's, it's a wart. And so then he would go on for another couple years, see another dermatologist, and then another little tiny weensy dinky biopsy was performed. So the important point here is that uh, you know, there, there's no stone tablet in burning bush, as I said earlier. Uh, really, somebody should have wrote at some point, you know, seven, seven centimeter lesion popping out the other side of the foot, rule out wart. People would have been like, wow, that's weird. So, uh, so, but, but the important point is that when you have something this large and things like that, just writing rule out wart is probably not doing justice uh, to what you actually really suspect. So you should probably actually write things like rule out uh, verrucous carcinoma, and, and that will alert everybody to, to what's going on. Because otherwise, everybody just keep proceeding with, oh, well, gosh, it's just a really unusual wart. And this man actually had to have a partial amputation of his foot and everything else because it had now torn up all the structures of the foot and everything else. So verrucous carcinoma, they can occur in other places. 
Uh, they can occur in other places like the oral mucosa. They can occur in the genital mucosa. We call them epithelioma cuniculatum. In places, we call them Ackerman tumors in the mouth. But they're all really the same thing. So when a word achieves a certain size, you need to be like, hmm, I wonder if there's any possibility this could be a Verruca's carcinoma. So the, the next non-melanoma skin cancer that you want to know a little bit about, because the purpose of this lecture is really to make sure that you know a little tiny bit about a whole bunch of things. Uh, because what happens usually is we make these diagnoses as a dramatic pathologist, and then we wait for the phone call from the clinician saying, I don't know anything about that, and I'm about to go in the room and talk to the patient. So if you know a little bit about these things, then you can speak with the patient in a more reasonable fashion and kind of let them know about what's going to happen to them next. So the, the next thing that arises from time to time is sebaceous carcinoma. And of course, sebaceous glands are the normal oil-producing glands of the skin. They keep things like the hair lubricated, and they, they make our lives hell with acne and everything else. But uh, they're, they're a normal constituent of the cell that's pretty important. And here's an example of a normal sebaceous gland right here. And you can see it, the whole cell becomes the secretory product in, in sebaceous glands. They're holocrine secreting glands. And the whole cell becomes the secretory product, fa falls upon the hair, and the hair grows out lubricated so that you avoid oh, things like split ends and all those things that, that are, are a problem with dry hair. So that's the normal function of a sebaceous gland. But of course, you can have a carcinomatous process in the sebaceous gland, just like you can have a carcinomatous process anywhere else. They're particularly common upon the eye. And in fact, we divide sebaceous carcinoma into ocular and extraocular. And everybody really, really thinks of sebaceous carcinoma being the ocular type. And that's probably the more common type. But you can have extraocular sebaceous carcinoma any place you have hairs because sebaceous glands always lubricate hair. So any place you have hair, you can have a sebaceous carcinoma, really. Uh, so this is an ocular type. And you can see why ocular types are particularly deadly on occasion, because they go undetected for a long time. People blow them off as styes or hordeolums and all those things, calasions. And so nothing is done uh, about them for a long time. And that's, that's probably the big danger of sebaceous carcinoma. So, so it was always taught that they were more common in elderly people, in women, and in Asians. But a really big recent study actually showed they are more common in elderly persons, just like all cancers. But they're actually more common in men in this particular study. And there really wasn't any difference with regard to ethnicity. But was, what was uniform is that they can be deadly on occasion when they're confused with styes and things like that. So in a persistent sty, you want to have a low threshold for being like, gosh, that's really weird, a sty for three months. Hmm getting progressively larger all the time. Uh, maybe I should broaden my differential to include uh, some other things. Here's an example of an extraocular sebaceous gland carcinoma. And that's really no different uh, than, than any other tumor. I couldn't tell you that's not a basal cell carcinoma or a squame or anything else. There's nothing to give it away clinically as to what it is. But histologically, you know, remember the sebaceous gland that I showed you that was normal just a minute ago. This is normal sebaceous tissue right here. Uh, so this sebaceous carcinoma looks like just kind of a normal sebaceous gland gone wrong. And if you look up close, you see mitotic activity and big, ugly, hyperchromatic cells, meaning very purple staining uh, cells, things that look very, very abnormal. Uh, but really, you can still tell that it's sebaceous tissue when you look at the normal sebaceous tissue right here. The problem with sebaceous carcinoma is some of it isn't very obviously sebaceous tissue. This is also sebaceous carcinoma, but you can only tell that there's sebaceous cells in just a few areas. And the remainder of the tumor just looks kind of like a, a monomorphous basaloid neoplasm. Remember, the word basaloid neoplasm doesn't mean basal cell carcinoma. It just means purplish staining neoplasm. So it looks like any other 
basaloid neoplasm. So uh, uh, what you always worry about with somebody with sebaceous carcinoma is the ocular type does more poorly, but you, what you really want to know is, hmm, that's weird. I wonder if the patient could possibly have Muir-Torre syndrome. Does everybody remember Muir-Torre syndrome? It's a genetic syndrome where you have early visceral cancers like renal cell carcinoma, you have squamous cell carcinoma on the body like keratoacanthomas, and then you have this increased risk of, of, of sebaceous carcinoma. And so one thing that people want to know is if I have a person with sebaceous carcinoma and this person had sebaceous carcinoma, is there any chance that they have Muir-Torre? So you want to ask probative questions about, well, do you have a history of early malignancy in your family? Do you have anything like that? But there actually exists some immunostains that the dermatopathologist can use to try to guess how likely is it that this person has Muir-Torre syndrome. And there's three stains. There's MLH1, MSH2, and MSH6. Then there's another one called PMH, but that's not used very often. But we do these three stains, and depending upon whether the tissue expresses, this is a positive result, or doesn't express uh, the, the marker, we can predict how likely it is that the person has Muir-Torre. And you do that with a simple chart like this. It's been published. I actually have this stuck to my filing cabinet in my office. And you can actually look at the pattern of expression, and you can tell the person, the clinician, you can say, what's the positive predictive value? It's like 80% or 70%. And then the person can make an informed decision about going for additional screening and additional testing to see if they do have Muir-Torre. So again, it's with sebaceous carcinoma. And sometimes we do the screening on people with sebaceous adenomas, which are benign sebaceous growths. Um, but we don't do the, you don't have to do the test for sebaceous gland hyperplasia. Sebaceous gland hyperplasia is so ubiquitous that it doesn't mean anything if you have sebaceous gland hyperplasia. But again, this is something that you would consider in a person who has sebaceous carcinoma or sebaceous adenomas, and they have a family history that seems to indicate some kind of risk. They have a family history, a lot of people with early carcinomas, you know, colon cancer at 40s and 50s and things like that. That would be a strange pattern that then you'd pick up the phone and call the dramatic pathologist and say, hey, I've heard about these tests. Is there any chance you could do them for me? And that would tell you how likely it is to, to need additional studies and additional testing. So usually we treat sebaceous gland carcinoma with either micrographic removal and maybe an oculoplastics closure if it's an ocular lesion, or, or with just wide local excision if it's on a, on a, on a truncal location or something like that. Um, but here's an example of some of the results. Here's a lesion on the eye that ended up being a sebaceous carcinoma. They did micrographic removal and oculoplastics closure, and they got a pretty, pretty nice result. The one thing to remember is there's some very recent studies, 2012 studies, showing that if the lesion was bigger than a, than a centimeter, bigger than 10 millimeters, then probably that's a situation where you want to think about sentinel lymph node. And that works really, really well because it's nice even number that everybody can remember. So with a sebaceous carcinoma that was bigger than a centimeter, then maybe you want to go ahead and think about oculoplastics doing the whole thing, doing all of it, doing the sentinel lymph node, everything else. Whereas if it's less than a centimeter, then maybe you would go with Mohs and then follow by oculoplastics closure or something like that. And that's for sebaceous carcinoma around the eye, one centimeter. Very recent study. Okay, so which of the following is true about Merkel cell carcinoma? The neoplasm occurs most often in younger persons. The neoplasm is associated with HHV8 infection. The neoplasm is often easily crushed in a punch biopsy. The neoplasm is often treated with excision alone. The neoplasm is rarely fatal. Okay, so it looks like the majority is getting the right answer, which is the neoplasm is easily crushed in a punch biopsy. This is actually true of Kaposi's sarcoma 
uh, not of Merkel cell carcinoma. Merkel cell carcinoma is Merkel cell polyoma virus, not HHV8. So let's take a look at Merkel cell carcinoma. So Merkel cell carcinoma's other name is primary cutaneous neuroendocrine carcinoma. And some people prefer this name because we actually don't have a shred of evidence that it's actually from Merkel cells. Merkel cells are normal constituents of the skin that we think are involved in proprioception, touch, things like that. Um, but we don't really actually know for a fact that Merkel cell carcinoma comes from Merkel cells. So that's a little bit debatable. So some people prefer to call it primary cutaneous neuroendocrine carcinoma, but it's a rare and aggressive neoplasma. It's most common upon the head and neck of older people. This isn't a diagnosis that typically occurs in a 40-year-old or even a 50-year-old or even a 60-year-old. It's typically a 70, 80, 90-year-old that gets Merkel cell carcinoma on the head and neck in a sun-exposed area. That's most common. And it is associated with Merkel cell polyoma virus, and the same people that discovered this association also did discover the HHV8 and Kaposi's uh, sarcoma association, but they're different viruses, different things. So here's an example of the typical distribution of Merkel cell carcinoma. Strangely, it's in the same place that most people get sunlight, things like that. There's nothing clinically that's super distinct about Merkel cell carcinoma. This could be uh, any of a variety of things. Could be an intradermal nevus, could be a Spitz nevus, could be a JXG, could be a Merkel cell carcinoma, could be a melanoma. I could name just about any pink tumor and, 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 and enter that into the differential diagnosis here. Um, but there are some kind of things that people have promoted. They've promoted the AEIOU features of Merkel cell, A being an asymptomatic lesion expanding rapidly in an immunosuppressed or older patient uh, uh, and, and ultraviolet exposed skin. So they've done the AEIOUs. I just added in a paper that I'm, I'm working on, I added AEIOU plus blue uh, because very often the lesions have kind of a bluish hue. It's certainly not the only thing on earth that can take on a bluish hue, but very often Merkel cell carcinoma has just kind of a strange bluish hue to it. Under the microscope, what you see is a basaloid neoplasm. What did I say the word basaloid means? It doesn't mean basal cell carcinoma, it just means purple purple tumor. So you see a basaloid neoplasm, looks like huge sheets of cells going all the way to the deep aspects of the punch biopsy. And the cells look really big and ugly and aggressive. They're all, they're molded to one another. The nuclei are touching one another. There's mitotic figures everywhere. It doesn't look quite like the basal cell carcinoma that we've been looking at in the other room during my other uh, dermatopathology workshop. It does look a little bit different, but other than that, you need to usually do stains to get to the bottom of it. And we usually do things like cytokeratin 20 or E EMA. These are markers that wouldn't normally mark basal cell carcinoma, but they will normally mark a Merkel cell carcinoma. So they're decidedly different between basal cell carcinoma and Merkel cell carcinoma. And certainly Merkel cell carcinoma is much, much more deadly, and it's important to know that it's a Merkel cell carcinoma for that reason. One new development, it's a, it's a new development, has shown that if there's a marker called P63, and it normally is expressed by epithelium. This is a normal hair follicle right here. If it's positive in Merkel cell carcinoma, those patients have done extraordinarily badly. Here's the survival curve uh, for, for P63. Here's the survival curve if the, if the Merkel cell carcinoma is P63 negative. So it's actually kind of becoming the standard now from a prognostic standpoint to do a P63 because it tells the patient dramatically how they're going to do. The first time it was reported, people thought it was an anomaly or something like that, but then it was confirmed by a second and third group. And so now we accept that P63 positive Merkel cell carcinoma has a very, very bad prognosis. So if you ever get a diagnosis of Merkel cell carcinoma, you're going to want to ask your dermatopathologist, can you go ahead and do a P63 because I want to talk to the patient about it and I want to have that result before I talk to them. 
So uh, Merkel cell carcinoma, P63 is very, very important, but it turns out the Merkel cell polyoma virus, which we talked about, whether that is present or absent was not prognostic. So P63 is prognostic. Merkel cell polyoma virus, even though it's an interesting thing, you know, everybody's very interested in why is the virus involved in Merkel cell carcinoma, it didn't have any prognostic value in, in, in this study right here. So another thing to always worry about every single time you have a Merkel cell carcinoma is, is the patient a smoker or not? Because it can be very, very hard to tell Merkel cell carcinoma from metastatic small cell lung carcinoma. So, so really, like, this is a situation where ruling out nub or rule out lesion or rule out basal cell is not adequate. If you get a diagnosis of Merkel cell carcinoma back, you really should call call the uh, uh, dermatopathologist and tell him, you know, that patient is or is not a smoker or they do or do not have a, a history of, of lung carcinoma because it can look very, very, very similar. This is actually lung carcinoma that looks almost identical to the picture I showed you, Merkel cell carcinoma, but it's TTF1 positive. And so I do that extra study with immunostains to prove that it's a lung carcinoma, which is TTF1 positive, and not a Merkel cell carcinoma, which is TTF negative. So. Very, very important. So again, just to, just to be really, really clear, P63 is a good study with prognostic significance, and TTF1 is very, very important in the differential of, of, of lung carcinoma. And so it would be added bonus to know what the patient's status is with regard to smoking and with regard to a prior history of lung carcinoma, because that might really affect uh, the decision tree in the uh, process. So the prognosis of Merkel cell carcinoma is generally pretty bad. This is a very, very deadly disease. It's probably deadly because it occurs in older people who don't have a lot of reserve, and it's probably just a very aggressive uh, tumor as well. But generally, the mortality rate for Merkel cell carcinoma is much, much different from basal cell carcinoma. So that may be the reason why you kind of want to know, is it really a basal cell carcinoma or is it really a Merkel cell carcinoma? But the other reason is the treatment is a little bit different. Um, micrographic surgery can, can compare very favorably to wide local excision, particularly in, in areas where you want to conserve tissue. But sentinel lymph node is being used increasingly for sentinel lymph node uh, for Merkel cell carcinoma. And in fact, the, the recommendation from the most prominent research group for this year is that almost all cases of Merkel cell carcinoma should get a sentinel lymph node, almost all. That, so that's in there. That's, that guy's nationally famous in Merkel cell carcinoma. He's going to appear at your trial if you don't. Uh, so so uh, basically, uh, Merkel cell carcinoma is really getting a sentinel lymph node more and more and more and more. And the other major difference between Merkel cell carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma is Merkel cell carcinoma gets radiation therapy afterwards. So in addition to just getting the, the lesion removed, they usually do radiation therapy to the nodal basin. So that's another major difference. So you might think, well, why is it important if, if, it's a, if I call it a basal cell carcinoma and I cut it out anyway, why is it really, really important? Some people have still been sued even though they cut the tumor out because they didn't give radiation therapy afterwards because there's good evidence that the survival curves are different between people that didn't get radiation therapy uh, or that did get radiation therapy and that didn't get radiation therapy. There's a difference in the survival curve. So you might be denying the patient uh, some care. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add one thing. If you have a Merkel cell carcinoma on a part of the body um, that you feel that you could excise and you do that, and then someone says to you, well, wait, I, I really think this person should have had a sentinel lymph node biopsy. You've, you've done nothing wrong. Unless you've done some crazy flap to, to close the skin, 
they can still do a sentinel lymph node biopsy if you just did an excision with a complex primary closure. So just remember that. You can still send the patient for their sentinel lymph node biopsy. It has not destroyed the, the um, integrity of, of that type of study. And that's true not only for Merkel cell carcinoma, that's true for melanoma, that's true for anything. The two things you never want to do, and you want to make sure your node is clear, is you don't want to do a flap closure, and you don't want to do wide, excessively wide undermining. So if you actually think there's any chance for melanoma or Merkel cell or anything, and they're going to be going back and doing a sentinel lymph node, a really tight, really medical, legally sound node says that you didn't do a flap and you didn't do excessive undermining. Those are the two things that can alter a sentinel lymph node. So Dr. Miller's entirely right about that. So anyway, so moving on to uh, another tumor that's very, very unique to dermatology. Dermatologists probably know more about this tumor than anyone else is dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans. And somebody said yesterday you have to have lots of acronyms, and that is true. So DFSP is what all of us know as dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans. And it's a rare tumor, but it happens you know, several times a year. I make the diagnosis several times a year, and I live in a city of a million people. So it, it does happen. Uh, and that's a, just about, well, what do, you, what do you know? It's just about the incidence, four per million. I make the diagnosis several times a year. I live in a city of a million people. So uh, usually as middle-aged persons, it's usually the trunk and the extremities. And only about 40%, even though it's dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans, only about 40% cases, 40 of cases are protuberant. Some of them look atrophic and scar-like, really. So, and about 90% of the tumors are associated with this very characteristic genetic translocation, the 1722 translocation. And that's important with regard to therapy in just a minute. Dr. Miller will probably talk about that. But here, here's an example of a dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans. The location's good. The shoulder girdle area is a common place to see those. The patient's age is right. You notice they're not a, a super elderly, sun-damaged individual. Individual, and they have this, this ill-defined protuberant uh, tumor uh, on the chest wall. This is a different patient uh, that was a patient of mine, but looks exactly the same. It's just a little bit closer to the neck right here. Um, but uh, dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans, but not all of them are, are actually protuberant. And so somebody asked this question the other day in the dermatopathology workshop. So what does a DFSP look like? So a dermatofibroma would typically be kind of shallow like this, a plain old garden variety dermatofibroma. But this tumor really begins down in the deepest aspects of the tumor, or deepest aspects of the dermis, and it's also huge. This is a huge tumor. It's gigantic. It's taking over the subcutis. This is the little tiny amount of fat that's left. And then this is honeycombing. We call this honeycombing. So this tumor has taken over all of the fat and left just a little tiny honeycomb of fat left. So that's very, very characteristic of DFSP, and that would be extremely unusual for a DF. Very, very unusual. Uh, here's another more example of more honeycombing right here. And so the take-home point, really, if you, should th if you stopped and thought about this a little bit, here's the uh, uh, epidermis right here. This is the epidermis, the purple stuff. Here's the shallow dermis right here, no tumor up here. No real tumor up here. Here's the DFSP way down here. So what are your odds of really ever diagnosing a DFSP in a shave? Only if your dermatopathologist is awesome will they ever diagnose it. A dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans in a shave. To really make the diagnosis of a DFSP, you have to have a punch or an excision because you have to give them enough 
of the lesion to look at. So uh, a common thing I always see is uh, uh, you know trying to make the diagnosis. They say rule out DFSP, and they, it's a little tiny tangential shaved specimen. All you're really doing is proving you know you know really how little you understand about DFSP, and really kind of like arming the person. If it is a DFSP, you've set yourself up for the inevitable deposition because people are going to want to know well, if you really thought it was a DFSP, why, why did you do a shave? Well, that seems like a bad idea. So, so actually, my, I spoke in New Mexico last week, and I said, really, you shouldn't write rule out DFSP on a shave unless you really want to create trouble for yourself. So if you really thought it was a DFSP, you should do a punch or an excision. And if you didn't really think it was a D, if you DFSP and you really thought it was a DF, then just don't write DFSP at all. And just write rule in dermatofibroma. Uh, because that would be a lot better for you medical legally than writing down something that you know can't be diagnosed in a shave and, and kind of arming the other side. Uh, so here's an interesting patient. I saw this patient in um, oh, maybe like 2007, 2008, something like that. And they had also been to see a bunch of dermatologists in Colorado Springs. Uh, a lot of different uh, dermatologists had, had, had seen this patient, and it's in the genital area. It's kind of in the inguinal fold right here, uh, and uh, it's all draped off. But uh, it was this bound down kind of fibrotic appearing cord of skin right here, and a lot of people had done shave biopsies of it. And so they sent me the shave biopsy, a, a doctor in Colorado Springs, and I was a little nervous about it. I couldn't see very much. This isn't the shave biopsy. The institution that did the shave biopsy won't give it to me. But it, it looked a little bit something like this. Just barely, he just barely got into the dermis. And I thought, well, that is weird. And I was a little bit nervous because the patient had seen so many different dermatologists. And I didn't kind of want to be the hot potato, you know, the last person to hold this hold this thing. So I said, will you just send the patient to me, because I'm a dermatologist also. I said, will you just send the patient to me? And so I did this punch biopsy right here. And, and in the punch biopsy, I started picking up all this fibrotic uh, uh, quality right here and all this fibrosis down here. And it kept going, kept going, kept going. And so I went ahead and did a CD34. And a CD34 is the stain that should be positive in a DFSP, and it should be negative in a dermatofibroma. So this actually ended up being a DFSP, and we actually proved that further because we went ahead and did the genetic test to find the 1722 translocation. So it was a really bit uh, an unusual thing, and I'm very, very, very lucky, very, very lucky, that I didn't blow that first biopsy off because it was just a little tiny shave like this, and it just looked a little tiny bit funny. It contained about this much dermis. And I was just a little bit nervous about it. And had I not called the patient in and done my own biopsy, then I would have been added to the four or five different dermatologists that had kind of um, bungled this case to date. So Dr. Miller, do you want to tell them what you did from this point on? So this patient actually was a, a young female patient, as Dr. High said, the lesions in her groin area on her left side um, at the inguinal fold. And I if you were in my lecture yesterday on vulvar dermatology, we talked about that shave biopsies really aren't a good idea in the vulva. Um, this patient definitely, first of all, would have benefited from uh, either a deep punch like Dr. High did or an excisional or incisional biopsy. Uh, she was also seen by several different OBGYNs and uh, in addition to dermatologists. And so anyway, this lesion was so large that to take it out um, as it was on presentation would have really been a very morbid surgery. So we decided to use some Gleevec, the medication that Dr. High mentioned. I mesylate. 
I mid, think. Um, but it will only work for patients that have that 1722 translocation. And the purpose of that medication is to try and shrink the tumor, and that's what most surgeons have used it for. Now, it is not a medication that can treat the tumor, meaning that it will help to resolve the tumor permanently. It's really just to make it smaller, such that then you can do surgical intervention and the resulting defect won't be quite as large. So um, she did take the Gleevec, but she only lasted for a big about six months. Uh, the side effects of that drug are horrendous and she had a lot of swelling and a lot of edema and she just couldn't take it anymore in the end though we did get it to shrink by about a centimeter which may not seem like very much but in this area of the body where you don't want to lose as much tissue where you want to um, conserve as much tissue as you can in, in a young female sexually active who does not want to be um, mutilated in that area that it was pretty significant so that, that so what she's getting at is this this translocation that's present in ninety percent. There's actually a, a genetic test you can do for it, and if you have that translocation, it does mean that it's probably Gleevec sensitive or mitnib mesylate sensitive. And, and and most surgeons use it to reduce the tumor burden prior to surgery, although there is this, you have to be really, really careful that you don't create skip lesions. That's one thing that they're worried about with, with treatment is that you create a skip lesion and cut down the middle of the skip and leave some dermatofibrosarcoma protuberans behind. But, but people do occasionally use it for, for inoperable tumors and things like that. The question with it is, well, then how long do you give it for the rest of the patient's life? How, how long do you take it till the tumor is gone? That, that, that aspect is a little bit unknown. So uh, again, it, it has to do with this, this trans location right here makes it Gleevec susceptible, mitinib mesylate susceptible, and it has been used to both uh, perioperatively and postoperatively and even in place of surgery if it's an inoperable condition. Okay, so it, it is a locally aggressive tumor. It has a high recurrence rate, and people always wonder, is that because it's so hard to see when you're cutting it out because it kind of feathers out at the edge, or is it because it's, it's an aggressive neoplasm? But the survival rate is excellent. DFSP rarely, rarely creates any metastatic disease. If it does, it usually goes to the lung, but uh, it rarely uh, causes any kind of metastatic disease. And so it, it's kind of a malignancy, but kind of not in a lot of ways because the survival curve is so outstanding. But uh, it is something that always requires very, very intense surgical care and, and thoughtful care as well. Okay, so the next entity is atypical fibrosanthoma. Everybody treated a patient with an AFX. We love acronyms, right? AFX is atypical fibrosanthoma. So it's a different kind of non-melanoma skin cancer. It was discovered at the AFIP in 1963 uh, by Helwig. And at first they thought it was a benign entity. They didn't even think it was, uh, they didn't even think it was a malignancy. And then lo and behold, over time, uh, they started to be a few case reports of some aggressive behavior and things like that. So now we consider it uh, a malignancy. It occurs on heavily sun-damaged skin, the same exact places that you would expect to see uh, uh, Merkel cell carcinoma, or the same exact places that you see atypical fibrosanthoma. Usually creates a dome-shaped lesion, often ulcerated, typically the head and neck, sun-exposed skin, and the differential diagnosis is the same things that we've already talked about with regard to Merkel cell carcinoma. 
So here's an example of a guy, older gentleman, sun-exposed area, uh, dome-shaped tumor, maybe a little incipient ulceration right there. And so this is an atypical fibrosanthoma. And it's a spindle cell tumor. And that's what's different about it as opposed to most basal cell carcinoma or squamous cell carcinoma. It's a spindle cell tumor. And you can see it all down here in the, in the dermis. And we often use stains to prove that it's not a spindle cell squamous cell carcinoma, which is a real occurrence, and, and, and stains to prove that it's not a desmoplastic melanoma, because desmoplastic melanoma is a spindle cell lesion as well. So we usually use procollagen, which marks fibrohistidic cells, or CD68, which marks fibrohistidic cells. But in the end, you basically prove that it's not a spindle cell squame and that it's not a melanoma. You're kind of proving a negative, really. Those are the things you care more about because those are even more aggressive forms of skin cancer. And so you prove that it's not one of those. Uh, it, it does obviously look malignant. These cells are pleomorphic, meaning they vary in size. They're hyperchromatic, meaning they vary in the color purple that they stain. And very often you see mitotic figures galore. In fact, some people think it's atypically atypical, meaning it's especially atypical in its presentation. So uh, you're always going to need, need immunostains. Only a fool would ever diagnose an atypical fibrosanthoma without immunostains uh, because you, the risk of leaving a desmoplastic melanoma or a, desmo, or a spindle cell squamous cell carcinoma are very, very, very great. Again, AFX is not particularly malignant, but certainly desmoplastic melanoma and spindle cell squamous cell carcinoma are. Usually AFX is treated adequately with just con, uh, conservative excision where these are generally afforded a more severe prognosis. So that's why you want to use immunostains to be certain that you know what, what you're working with. Again, for a long time, people didn't even consider AFX malignant, but then they did start to see some, some local lymphatic spread. And so the modern standard is just to conservatively remove the lesion. Uh, actually, the excision also affords a second opportunity to make sure that there's no deeper component because there's an entity called malignant fibrous histiocytoma. And malignant fibrous histiocytoma is a kind of sarcoma that grows out towards the skin where AFX is a kind of cutaneous sarcoma that grows downward. So, so when you get the whole excision specimen out, you kind of worry a little bit, is this a malignant fibrous histiocytoma that just happened to involve the skin, or was this an AFX that was growing downward? So that's another good reason to, to do some kind of definitive surgery to make sure that there's no deeper aspect to the lesion. So the next thing to talk about is leiomyosarcoma. So leiomyosarcoma is a malignancy of, 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 of the smooth muscle of the skin, which is the erector pylorum. So leiomyosarcoma of cutaneous derivation. So this is derived from the smooth muscle of the skin is an aggressive malignancy uh, um, when metastatic typically involves the brain, uh, is treated with margins of five centimeters or possibly amputation, occurs most often in elderly men or often requires chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Okay, so that's good. We'll, we'll start talking about it right then. So notice that people kind of split on this pretty evenly. So the, the right answer is it does occur most often in elderly men. And, and the, the important point that I wanted to make with the question is it's not. Actually, while it's called leiomyosarcoma, when it's purely of cutaneous derivation, you want to avoid treating it aggressively. In fact, you'll hurt the patient more by treating it aggressively than you will just to, 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 to tell them, you know, cutaneous leiomyosarcoma is completely different bird than visceral leiomyosarcoma or anything like that. So it's a rare soft tissue tumor. It, when it's in the skin, it's derived from the erector pylorum muscle, the muscle that lifts the hair up to give you goosebumps. That's what it actually is derived from. So this is cutaneous leiomyosarcoma. It's completely different, completely 100% different from like retroperitoneal leiomyosarcoma or uterine leiomyosarcoma, 
completely different from visceral disease. And I'll point out why that is in just a second. So it's most common in elderly white men, and it's thought to be a disease with high local recurrence and a low risk of metastatic disease. When met met metastases do occur, just like DFSP, they usually involve the lung, but uh, it's a very, very low aggressive tumor. It's not very aggressive at all. And, and it's, while it is a leiomyosarcoma, it is malignancy, when it's cutaneously derived, and that's completely different from visceral disease, you want to kind of avoid over-treating the patient. And this is a problem that dermatologists are intimately involved in because what happens is then they get referred to an oncologist who has never seen a cutaneous leiomyosarcoma and is probably pretending that he has. And so he treats it like every other kind of sarcoma that he's ever been involved with. And they do do horrible things to these patients. And like I said, it's barely, barely a malignancy at all. Barely a malignancy at all. So here's an example of a leiomyosarcoma. They don't look like anything. Can't tell that they're not a Merkel cell or uh, an amelanotic melanoma or anything else. They don't look anything. But when you look at them under the microscope, you see all this smooth muscle proliferating in the dermis. This is smooth muscle down here proliferating in the dermis. And you go and look at it, and instead of being nice, normal-looking smooth muscle, you see all this pleomorphism. Here's a giant cell, here's a giant cell, here's some smaller cells, so that's pleomorphism. And then you see mitotic figures, and that's not something you would normally see in erector pylorum muscle, nor would erector pylorum muscle be usually this big. But note it's all in the dermis. It even stops before it gets to the subcutis. So this is cutaneously derived leiomyosarcoma. And so the next step is present, preventing the patient from being mortally, mortally wounded by everyone, every other doctor he's going to meet. So, so you say, yeah, you know what, I, I actually read uh, about these and I think the best thing is just to completely remove the lesion and then not do anything else, not do radiation therapy, not do chemotherapy, not do anything unless you go on to have other significant disease. And that's really, really important because complete local excision is all that you do. In fact, at Harvard, there's a guy that I'm friends with named Chris Fletcher, and he's kind of the big guru of soft tissue neoplasms. So that's kind of where dermatopathology leaves off and soft tissue pathology begins is the, with the sarcomas. And so he prefers, he's dropped the name sarcoma entirely from the di diagnosis, and he signs them out as atypical intradermal smooth muscle neoplasm. And he said he started doing that to prevent people from going Rambo on the patients and just going nuts with, with, with therapy. So he doesn't even use the word sarcoma in, in the diagnosis anymore. So just keep that filed away in the back of your mind. If you ever have a leiomyosarcoma, as long as it's cutaneously derived, as long as it's cutaneously derived, it's something that's really not the end of the world. I mean, you do want to treat it, but it, it's really usually not the end of the world. And in fact, in recent studies, 2013 studies, one centimeter margins have been completely adequate uh, for, for, for treating the lesion, completely adequate. So Kaposi's sarcoma is a disease that you used to have to know a whole bunch of, uh, about. Now you don't need to know nearly as much. Uh, it, it was very, very rare before HIV-AIDS. And then, in fact, it was one of the, the big clues to the AIDS epidemic in 1981, extending into the early 90s. Uh, because before that, you really just saw Kaposi's in, in older Jewish men, mostly Mediterranean descent. And, and now we saw it in a whole bunch of people that were um, uh, affected by HIV and AIDS. So it is associated with HHV-8. 
that's the big association. And there actually is now an immunostain for that, that marker. And so you can actually do the stain and just prove that it is or is not uh, Kaposi's sarcoma. It marks almost 100% of tumors. Very, very rare to not have marking. So that actually was a, a major step forward in that now it, it, they call it a decerebrate diagnosis now because it used to be very, very hard to tell if something was Kaposi's sarcoma or not. And now we have a stain that just really, really helps uh, with the diagnosis. These are all lesions of Kaposi's sarcoma that I treated in Peru. And some of them look like a bruise. Some of them look more substantial. Uh, this is Kaposi's sarcoma, even though it looks like a bruise. This is Kaposi's sarcoma. Kaposi's sarcoma very often affects the palate of the mouth. That's a common place to see it. And, and then again, it just looks like a whole bunch of blood vessels growing in kind of a malignant fashion. And you do your HHV8 immunostain. And sure enough, the nuclei mark positively or brown. And you know, ah, this is Kaposi's sarcoma. So HHV8 stain is a major breakthrough in, in Kaposi's sarcoma. Don't see as much Kaposi's now that heart is so ubiquitous. We don't see nearly as much Kaposi's sarcoma as we do, did, but we do see it from time to time. You can treat it in a myriad of ways. You can, you can just treat it with heart, see if it goes away. You can, you can cut it out. Sometimes it'll occur at the edges. You, you can radiate it. You can use vinblastine or vincristine, but very often you just first try immune reconstitution and, and see if that helps the situation. And then the last thing to talk about in our last five minutes here is angiosarcoma. So angiosarcoma is a malignant vascular tumor, uh, and it's a very, very aggressive thing. It's like Merkel cell carcinoma, very, very bad to have an angiosarcoma, a lot different than Kaposi's sarcoma for sure. And, and there's two different cutaneous forms. There's kind of the kind that comes without lymphedema, very, very common in elderly persons, head and neck, upper trunk, things like that. And then there's the cutaneous angiosarcoma that comes with lymphedema. And does everybody know what Stuart Treves? Does everybody remember Stuart Treves? So Stuart Treves is the thing that occurs in women with breast carcinoma. And they have the, the breast carcinoma treated. Maybe they even have radiation. And they scar down all the lymphatics in this area, either from the surgery or from the radiation therapy for both. And they end up with persistent lymphedema in one arm. And then over time, 10 or 15 years later, they start to develop angiosarcoma in the, in the arm with the poor lymphatic circulation. And that's called Stuart-Treves syndrome. Every, every resident in dermatology has to learn that at one point, even if they forget it. So that, that, that's the kind that's associated with lymphedema. And it usually occurs in the setting of breast carcinoma. It could occur like maybe if you injured your leg really, really bad and had permanent lymphedema in one leg, you could theoretically get it there as well. Angiosarcoma is chiefly a disease of older people, head and neck, maybe the upper trunk as well. And it presents as these blue-purple papules or plaques. Often it looks like a bruise initially uh, as, it, as it develops, just like Kaposi's kind of looked like a bruise uh, initially. And so here's a person with, with uh, you notice the age is right, the, the location is right, head and neck, and they have this purplish, ill-defined tumor. There's probably even tumor in here, really, when you think about it. Um, but a very, very, very bad tumor because often it's diagnosed very, very, very late uh, in, in the course of the disease. And what you see in angiosarcoma is just hundreds and hundreds of poorly defined blood vessels. These are all poorly defined blood vessels. And the tumor is just trying to create blood vessels, but because it's malignant, it's doing a bad job at that. And so the whole skin just kind of gets consumed with these poorly defined blood vessels. Here's another example. Looks a lot like Kaposi's sarcoma in many ways, uh, and sometimes it can be hard to differentiate, but these would all be HHV8 negative. There would be no involvement of the HHV8 virus in angiosarcoma. 
So the important thing is that this is an aggressive disease with high mortality, and it's very, very hard to obtain clear surgical margins because you can't really tell where the blood vessels are normal and where the blood vessels are, are proliferating. It's really, really hard to tell sometimes, particularly in frozen sections. So what does that mean? Would that mean that Mohs surgery was an indication for this? Only a fool would do Mohs surgery for angiosarcoma. It's not the standard of care, and there's literature to the opposite that says you can't tell where, where the, the tumor begins and where it ends. Uh, so, so really, that's frozen sections are at the heart of micrographic surgery. So it's really not a situation where anybody's going to treat it with micrographic surgery. I mean, there might be exceptional circumstances, maybe palliative or something. Um, but usually, uh, you, you, that this is somebody that will be referred on to a general surgeon an oncologic surgeon who will, will take over the care. There may be a role for dermatologists. Sometimes you'll get a referral from an oncologic surgeon and, and you'll think, why am I seeing a patient with angiosarcoma? And what they really want you to do is scouting biopsies. So they want you to do a whole bunch of punch biopsies around the periphery to see where the tumor might be or where the, the tumor might not be. But it's just in planning for the anesthesia and the surgery at the hospital and everything else. It's just to assist them in planning. It's not to actually decide where the margins are or anything like that. So that, that was what Dr. Miller and I had planned. This is, uh, um, uh, this is clone A. Clone A looks exactly like my wife, Misha, and her name is Madison. And this is clone B. Uh, there was no mixing in our family at all. Morgan looks exactly like me, and they took this nice little picture uh, for daddy, and then she started to choke it. <laughs> so uh, ho hopefully uh, Misha will never get that idea of choking me. I don't know. So, so we have, uh, we're five minutes. Uh, uh, we're right on time, so we have five minutes for questions or anything like that, and then we'll start the next session after that. I have a question about the uh, patient with the boyanoids uh, of the hand. Uh-huh, um, with, with the bone the bo papillosis bo yeah. of the hand. Mm -hmm. After treatment, did you do any biopsies to, to reassess? We, that's a good question. So she was asking about the person that we treated with the triple therapy on the hand. So um, uh, we, we did actually do a follow-up biopsy on her. We didn't see much going on. looked like a, a plain, boring uh, um, uh, epidermis. But we, we are pretty cautious, so we follow that woman closely. And some of the medicines, not the amiquimod so much, because she actually was one of those people who had flu-like symptoms, probably because so much was being absorbed through an open wound and things like that. We didn't consider continue the amiquimod, but we actually did continue the tazeratine, and she uses tazeratine to this day. Um, because what's really the downside of that? I guess cost, but um, there, there really isn't another downside to that. It's a, it's a, it's a topical retinoid, and she's well above the the uh, risk of, of, of becoming pregnant or anything like that. She's in her 50s. Uh, so there really wasn't a downside to, to continue the tazeratine. But that is off-label use. That was risky. That was gutsy. And the reason I did it is because there were a lot of people uh, whose butts might have been in the sling uh, over that thing. Uh, and none of us wanted uh, that to happen. So we, we Would see. radiation have been considered a Radiation a would be a thought. And we, we considered that, but it's pretty hard to get someone to irradiate a 50-year-old because she will live long enough to have yeah. the sequelae and all yeah. those tendons and things underneath the skin. We, we did think about doing that. Good questions. Thank you. Very good questions. I have a question and a comment. I have a 92-year-old female with I, and when I diagnosed a sebaceous carcinoma on her um, shoulder, uh -huh. looked like basically... Um, 
Anivis lipomatosis, honestly. And um, so I see her back. She's very hesitant to do full skin exams every three months or do lymph lymph node checks and stuff. Do you think it's overkill that I'm seeing her every three to six months, or would you kind of still see her pretty aggressively to to check nodes and everything? I I think that, you know, uh, well... You know the the size of the lesion probably does matter, and the depth. It was of the, a centimeter. I mean, yeah, yeah. So uh, to me, that seems pretty reasonable because we don't know as much about extraocular sebaceous carcinoma as we do ocular. But but there certainly is evidence that ocular, when it's greater than a centimeter, has a much higher risk of spread. And I showed you that slide. Now, some people might reasonably say, well, isn't that because the skin is paper thin there, and and you know uh, any invasion at all is going to have a much much greater relative depth? That's that might be true. But, but I think, you know, in a larger lesion that resembled nevus lipomatosis superficialis, that's a pretty big goomba. Now, the thing going for her is she's 95, you said, or whatever? Yeah, So her life expectancy 90s, so. is about three months. Right. So, so, uh, <laughs> right. Not this, not this uh, spicy woman. Yeah, so, 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 so you, you know, she may not make the next follow-up visit. But, uh, you know, I, I think that you're, you're, you're not, you don't have the same medical legal risks that you do if she was right. 59. But, uh, uh, yeah, that seems pretty reasonable because the larger the lesion and the greater the depth of invasion with sebaceous carcinoma, probably the more likely you are to have uh, And then I have one quick outcome. comment about um, AFX tumors. I have a gentleman that had two areas, very nonspecific, excoriated, almost parigo-like areas that came back as AFX in two areas, and then he had Mohs surgery. I saw him back. He had uh, about a two- to three-month history of a couple more spots um, that were not close to the Mohs site, and he's now had four AFXs on his scalp, and they just looked like... I, I would have brushed over it and said, you pick that area and that's mm-hmm. it. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've got a, something that's been hanging around for several months. Listen. We've so. had at the University of Colorado, we've had some cases of AFX on the scalp that have been very, very, very aggressive and have been recurrent and persistent. And in those cases, there's been a lot of mucin, uh, which is a, you know, mu- mucus, mucin, dermal mucin. And so we actually believe at the University of Colorado, and it actually, we, we believed it for a while before somebody actually recently published it. But if there's a lot of mucin in AFX, we always thought that was indicative of a very more aggressive disease and maybe even malignant fibrous histiocytoma coming from down low to up high. So, so we have seen some aggressive behavior, and it's usually in mucinous lesions. So it would be interesting to know if that lesion had a kind of myxoid appearance, a mucinous appearance or not. Um, for the DFSP, um, I recently diagnosed a patient with DFSP, and other than the local recurrence, is there an increased chance of them developing it somewhere else? Uh, you know, I, I think there might be a couple case reports of people with multifocal DFSP, but it's pretty unusual. Uh, you know, usually that, that's a, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Uh, that, that uh, you know, somebody is that unfortunate or something like that. Um, the, the other thing is uh, a dermal dendritic cell tumor, CD34 positive dermal dendritic cell hamartoma. It's been reported in the literature. It's even more rare than DFSP, um, but I'll just say it again in case you want to look it up. It's a dermal dendritic cell hamartoma, CD34 positive dermal dendritic cell hamartoma. It's even more rare than DFSP, but many people believe it's the benign cousin of DFSP. Some people have erroneously in my lifetime told me that DF is the benign variant and DFSP is the malignant variant. They don't have anything to do with one another at all. They're not, not, not a single thing. They don't have any, anything more to do than Misha Miller and I do. Uh, we're, we're not this, from the same lineage or anything. So, so DFs are completely different from DFSP, but there may be a relationship between dermal dendritic cell hamartoma being CD34 positive and the malignant cousin of it being a DFSP. 
What about what about follow up? For them, uh, follow up. Uh, you know, they're, they're they're very low malignancy tumor, but they have a very high incidence of recurrence. Okay. And the the incidence of recurrence, as Dr. Miller could could confirm, is much much lower if you do micrographic removal. They used to do just general surgery removal, three to five centimeter margins. So, so with micrographic removal, you probably have a lesser incidence of recurrence, but you should probably follow them more for recurrence than you are following them for some kind of crazy metastatic event. You don't have to do like six month chest x-rays or anything. Okay. You might grab a chest x-ray the very first day that the diagnosis is made, not because you actually expect to see anything, but because then you'll have a baseline from, from moving forward. But you don't follow these people with chest x-rays or anything like that. Okay, great. Thanks very much for your time.